So it turns out about uh, three years ago in January, <clears throat> the uh, school newspaper at Yale University did a report on the most popular class ever offered in the history, in the 300 year history of the school. Uh, Psychology 157 was a class called Psychology and the Good Life. And the overwhelming response that uh, came to the class from Dr. Laurie Santos, who was looking at the science of uh, cognitive health and mental happiness, um, made her into like a minor celebrity on campus. The, the school newspaper said this, quoted her as saying this, that was really when I saw the need for this kind of work. When you work closely with students who realize they, are, they really are a little more stressed and overwhelmed than professors often know. And that was really frustrating because psychology has a lot of answers, she said. So apparently the first half of the class was devoted to studying what the research says really makes us happy as opposed to the things that we think will make us happy. Among the topics that the students worked through were things like finding friends, finding meaning, uh, taking time for mindfulness. Set over and against these were the things that students thought would make them feel fulfilled. Uh, things like um, better grades or higher salaries when they graduated. Well, in the second half of the course, the students were encouraged to apply what they had learned uh, through these projects or what the professor called rewirements. And they were encouraging students to sort of engage in practices that have been known to make people happier, like meditation. Uh, but it all culminated at the very end of the semester in something that the, pre- that the, the, the professor called um, uh, hack yourself, <laughs> where you were supposed to go and be challenged to make one small change in your life that hopefully would have the effect of making you happier, like taking up painting or maybe hanging out with friends more, something to that effect. Now look... This is Yale, mind you. I'm assuming a bastion of academic respect. And so I'm assuming that that this is the best that the academic world can offer when we start to think about the question of human fulfillment. And it makes it interesting for our study that we're going through here at Christ Prez because we're diving headlong into the Sermon on the Mount. And, And if you will, it's amazing to see how Jesus structures his own master class in human fulfillment. Again, look at Yale's requirements. They talked about finding friends and meaning and mindfulness. What I find interesting about their class is all of those things that were listed in this article are rooted in what a person does or maybe the things that happen to a person. Human flourishing, we would, it would seem, is about doing your best to rearrange your circumstances around exactly what you think makes you happier. But Jesus actually sits down on the side of this mountain. He takes up this place of authority. Uh, He's climbing up to what the ancient Near Eastern uh, version of it would be a a podium uh, where he acts as a guru or a teacher to people. But what's interesting is, is he goes in an entirely different direction than our Yale professor. Because instead of talking about our circumstances, he begins to talk about our identity. In other words, instead of talking immediately about what we do, which, hold on, there's going to be plenty more in the sermon about what we do, he begins by asking the question about who you are. And I realize this is super vital as we study this sermon, because we're coming to the opening of these famous little phrases that have become to be known as Beatitudes, this very famous, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
But it's very easy to read these things as if they're sort of guides to the fulfilled life. In other words, I think you miss these meaning, the meaning of these beatitudes if you see them as like um, lifetime, lifestyle steps, right? Um, you know, true happiness is found if you'll just walk through the steps of these eight or nine beatitudes. But that's not right. Rather, what the beatitudes are doing is they're describing something that has already taken place in the life of the blessed person. That's what's happening. In other words, the blessed life is one that has to be entered in before the rest of the sermon makes sense. So the Beatitudes are not describing Christian character traits that all of us ought to strive for. (laughs) What it's saying is, is that all of these features describe all Christians. And the logical succession to them means that Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. Each of the Beatitudes you're going to find assumes the other one. But here's the point. Jesus is saying you can't even begin to live the good life until you've become a different person. That's the summary of this morning. Until you've been down the path that the Beatitudes lay out. And so Jesus is trying to lay out for us at the beginning of how you can know whether you've even seen the kingdom of God. We're going to find out this week and next that being in Jesus' kingdom begins with a going in, a going into yourself And then leads to a going out. Beatitudes 1 through 3 talk about this going in and seeing what we're about on the inside. And then 4 through 8 will move us out into the world around us. But every true Christian has taken this path. That's the important point. So how important is it for us to understand this path? Well, I want to focus this on three sort of ideas. Number one, I want to look at the way of poverty, the way of a broken heart, and the way of meekness. First of all, let's look at this thing, the way of poverty. What Jesus says there in verse 3, he says, The good life belongs to the poor in spirit. Christianity begins right here, and so we better be sure of our terms. And the first thing we need to notice is, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not specifically talking about the financially, or what we might call materially poor. Now hold that thought, because later on in the book of Matthew, we're going to find that the financially and materially poor, they kind of get Jesus' ministry more than others. But, but hold that thought. We're getting to that. Now Jesus is talking about a metaphor for spiritual bankruptcy. Look what it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's talking about a disposition inside. That word poor there comes in verse 3 comes from a root word that means to cower and to cringe like a beggar. So what we find is poverty is understood by the behavior that it elicits. And so Jesus is saying that those who live the good life in the kingdom do so because of the posture that they've taken inside of their own hearts. This level of poverty is so acute that the person has to obtain their living through begging. They cowered, they begged. Now why did they cower? Well, the answer is this, is because the spiritual bank account that exists inside every single person is empty. That's the reason why. If there's no begging, there's no poverty. But I think this is a wonderful way to help us distinguish. It's a wonderful way to help us distinguish between someone who is a Christian and someone who is just kind of doing the religious thing. This is where it divides at this point. Because it has to do with this capacity of human souls to keep accounts. Both themselves and those around them, human beings are always running what we might call an internal ledger of merits on the one hand and demerits on the other. 
And all of those together create the measure of who you are. That's what Jesus is assuming. And he's saying that entrance into his kingdom is, is only, only for those who have empty bank accounts. Which means that your biggest problem with entering Jesus' kingdom is the notion that you still have something left to offer. A number of years ago, I heard a preacher say this. I thought it was genius. He said, that the, our great problem with dealing with this whole poverty of spirit idea from Jesus is that we still want to be kind of middle class in spirit. In spirit. <laughs> I love this. He says, when you're middle class in spirit, you say things like, well, you know, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not. I've tried to do my best and keep out of obvious trouble. Can't you hear them kind of keeping accounts in their heads? You're saying, I may not be rich by any means, but I've got some assets left over. I'm not rich, of course, but I'm not bankrupt either. When we talk like that, our language shows how we are measuring this internal ledger. What you're saying is, you still want to be middle class in spirit. <laughs> hey, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, I may not be up for the streets of gold, but I'm certainly not headed to hell or anything like that. But Jesus is saying that middle class spirits are missing his kingdom. So the question then becomes, how do I go from being middle class in spirit to, being, to, to finding true poverty of spirit? That's a really good question. I think there's two things. The first one is this. You're only spiritually bankrupt if you realize that even the things that you are writing down in your heart's ledger as merit, yeah, they're actually demerit also. In other words, everything that I consider to be good that's accruing to my benefit, even my best deeds, the Bible will say, are sinful in themselves. You know, the old American evangelist George Whitfield used to say, this is one of the ways in which you know that you're a Christian. Not just that you've repented of your sins, but that you've also repented of the things that you thought you were doing right. Even my repentance needs to be repented of, he said. But the second thing to think about this on a journey to spiritual poverty is this, that God's holiness being what it is, means that the truth is, it's not just that my bank account is empty, it's actually overdrawn. Not only do we have no resources of spirit with which to commend ourselves to God, but we're actually overdrawn by infinity. Now, why does the Bible say that? Well, remember last semester when we looked at the whole of the Ten Commandments, and we said over and over again that those Ten Commandments were expressions of God's character, of his heart. And, and as we started to dive into those things, and we looked at commands like, um, you know, you shall not bear false witness. And we talked about how bad it is to lie. And we suddenly started realizing that we've been lying to every person we've ever met before we could even speak. We also learned that, that you know, the Bible says that we ought not to murder people in our hearts and to hate them. And we realize I've hated just about everybody that I've ever met, eventually, over time. The things that someone else has that I don't, I deeply resent them for it. The Ten Commandments build up this idea that I've broken every single one of them. Well, if that law then is an expression of his identity, then we've created an infinite offense against him. We have incurred demerit. We're into negative space here. It's not just that the ledger is empty, it's that it's got a lot of red numbers in it. We're overdrawn. See, if you're middle class in spirit, what you probably see Jesus as is as a helpful example. He gives you an idea of how to live a life, and maybe you do or do not live up to that life. But if that's the case, then there's no power that comes from knowing that he reversed his fortunes with you. 
And because he never reversed fortunes with you, it means that you don't have the power to reverse your fortunes with other people. In other words, a Christian is someone who has found his home, you know, in a totally different source of fortune altogether. More on that in the weeks to come. But Jesus introduces us, first of all, to this way of poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit. But secondly, he introduces us to the way of the broken heart. And this one, honestly, is incredibly counterintuitive to this generation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The good life, Jesus says, belongs to those who mourn. Now look, remember, Jesus is giving us sort of this, this identification of a Christian, Christian's uh, ownership in the kingdom. And what begins in poverty of spirit, we find, then discharges in emotional sorrow. Think about it. The first beatitude is really intellectual. The second beatitude is emotional. Christians, he says, have mourned over their sins. They've mourned over their deeds. And they've mourned over the sins of the world. It has affected them. It hasn't affected them, by the way, because they got caught. That's actually remorse, which is nothing more than another form of aggravated self-pity. No, this kind of remorse is what we call, or this kind of uh, mourning is called repentance. And repentance is a realization that I have sinned against the innocence of God. The wound is not so much for breaking God's rule, but it's for breaking God's heart. I realize that Reformed types like ourselves and the tradition in which this church lives in tends to get very analytical when we talk about the idea of repentance. We very rightly mentioned that the root word of repentance is the word metanoia, which means a change of mind. All of that's true. But the Beatitudes here are talking about our emotions. Jesus is saying, the people who inhabit my kingdom are those for whom the issue of their sin has become emotional. That's who who lives there. In other words, a proper sense of mourning, Jesus says, is vital to those who live the good life. Otherwise, you've missed the tragedy of your own poverty of spirit. Let me see if I can illustrate this. I, I received a phone call a number of years ago from a campus minister who was distraught. Apparently, he had come home to the way in which I assume many of our homes are, to a house full of small children who were in utter chaos. And as the screaming and the yelling was going on, he did a quick assessment of the fact, and he determined that one of his children had actually been telling a lie. So he confronted the child on the lie, and the child refused to own it. And so he decided he would raise his voice and let the child know how serious he was. Still, the child would not cave or admit to it. Finally, he decided, regardless of your opinion of this particular parenting mode, he decided to apply the rod and he spanked the child. And at that moment, the child actually finally acquiesced and confessed to lying to their father. Well, completely in a bad mood by that time, he stormed off up into his room, only to be explained and told by his wife that indeed the child had not lied but had confessed to it only after having it extracted by his punishment of the child. Now look, as uncomfortable as that is, I want you to sit in that for a moment. What was my friend so distraught over when he called me? What was he distraught over? Well, I can tell you that it wasn't irritation because he had been proved wrong. It wasn't because his pride was hurt. What he was mourning over was the alienation that existed in the face of his little child. And so here's the question. Has there ever been an analogy in your heart for that kind of experience? Where I've looked at God as not a nameless, faceless, rule distributor, 
but rather one whose law is wrapped up in his heart, a sin against his innocence. Which leads me to the other sense of this beatitude, because not only is the good life marked by mourning over sin for forgiveness, mourning is also a healthy way to sort of approach life in a broken world. In other words, you don't live the good life until you've learned to process that life can be sad. A couple of years ago, we had here at the church uh, Dr. John Cox to do a marriage conference for us. And I remember in the midst of the conference, he was challenging us to rethink our sadness. Do you remember this? He said this at one point. He said, mourning helps us metabolize hurt. I love that. Sadness is actually going to move you forward. Mourning, he said, is the second most powerful emotion we can have, the first being gratitude. For some reason, when we mourn, it issues forth in healing. Jeremiah 31, 13 says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. God made us to feel sorrow when we're hurt. And when we come up with all the lame ways we try to deal with it, we only make it worse. But when we get to sadness and mourning, that's when you actually start to grow. Oh, I'm fascinated by that. Because I wonder to myself, why is that true? Why is it true that that kind of mourning brings us into health? Well, I mean, you don't have to be a therapist to know that the way in which we manage our emotions is vital to our flourishing. It's unhealthy, we know, to bury emotions, to ignore our emotions, to deny our emotions. But to learn to hold sadness in a sad world, that's a key to the good life, Jesus is saying. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. He says, look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? Yet he goes around crying all the time. He's always weeping, a man of sorrows. And do you know why? Because he is perfect. Because when you are not all absorbed in yourself, then you can feel the sadness of the world. And therefore, what you actually have is that the joy of the Lord happens inside the sorrow. The weeping drives you into the joy and even enhances the joy. And then it enables you to actually feel its grief without sinking you. In other words, you're finally emotionally healthy. And think about how genius that is. Sorrow is not an emotion to fear. It's an emotion that will be eradicated one day for sure in the new heavens and the new earth, of course. But what's happened to a Christian is he's learned to look at his sin and feel the weight of it and the emotions of it. But in the midst of that grief, he's been met by Jesus in a very specific way. And what that meeting has done is now freed them up to live again. And have an entirely different posture in the way they treat others around them. That's the way of, of the broken heart. Which leads me to the last beatitude that we'll look at today. And that is the way of meekness. Uh, Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. That Greek word translated meek is the Greek word uh, pra, uh, praus. Which comes from a word used to describe a, uh, a wild animal. right? That's finally been tamed. Uh, and my favorite illustration about this uh, is from my, uh, my race car driver friend. A number of years ago, he came over to my house and wanted to give me a test drive uh, in his father's uh, new uh, souped-up turbo Porsche. And, uh, you know, before we pulled out onto the interstate, we sat at a light, and, and suddenly someone rumbled up next door to us, and it was a, it was a bright red souped-up Camaro. 
kind of you know, revving his engines a little bit as he looked over at us kind of condescendingly. Well, as the light turned green, he sped off right in front of us. And I looked over at my friend in the driver's seat, and he looked at me and he said, we'll let him have this one. <laughs> now, what did he mean by that? What happened? He's saying, lest when you know you got it, you don't have to show it. That is what Jesus is talking about. Meekness is the opposite of weakness. It's actually power that's come under control. And so Jesus is saying that the good life is, comes to those who, though they have the power to push and to manipulate and to force people to bend their wills, they don't use it. They don't have to anymore. Meekness is the broken horse. Meekness is the, is the nuclear submarine under a wise captain. It's power under control. Let me put it this way. What's happened in the inside of a Christian is he has learned to think so differently about his relationship to power in general. They funnel that energy elsewhere. Why? Because there aren't many other beatitudes that describe Jesus' character more than this one, I would say. The Sermon on the Mount is saying, look, if you really want to see meekness, look at Jesus. Someone who voluntarily embodied his immeasurable power in a man, in a human being. And not just that, a human being from a decidedly blue-collar background. You look at that, and then you're going to see what meekness is. You will actually have the ultimate picture of what the good life looks like in the face of Jesus. And there's so many examples of this. If you, if you, if you go flipping through the Gospels, you'll see every now and then Jesus will give you a chance to sort of... Um, glimpse what's under the hood, if you will. One of my favorite experiences of that is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, when the, Jesus is with his disciples crossing the sea in a boat, and a storm comes up and threatens to kill them all. And of course, they wake Jesus up you know, dramatically, after which he sort of very groggily looks around and says, be quiet, and there's dead calm. In other words, the minimalism of the passage is showing that Jesus, it's almost like he's barely just lifting the pinky finger of his power and suddenly things change. But he so rarely uses it. Then there's fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember in uh, Matthew 26, 53? The people come to arrest Jesus and Peter sort of comes out and brandishes his sword so he's going to start the big fight. And Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. Don't you know that I can command 10,000 angels right now to come down? Look, here's the point. Jesus didn't give up his power and greatness and moral beauty. He still got it all. He's just not exercising it. That's the difference. Why? Because at that moment, he has put it all underneath. He's submitting everything he is so that he could be receptive to us when we come to him. Look, folks, here we are at the heart of the gospel. I mean, Jesus had every right in all, to use all of his power to come in judgment and condemnation, but he didn't. Instead, like Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and he humbled himself. Look, you got to see that those who are in the kingdom know so well that Jesus became nothing so that he could take my nothingness. And because that's true, I can then become nothing to other people. <laughs> I can be humble with other people. And I hope you hear that. I, I describe it semi-regularly here as the calculus of the gospel. 
And it's a formula of such that needs to be worked through on a regular basis. And I would argue very strongly, not the least of which when you start to dive into the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I want to end all of our times together this semester with something, some takeaways to work on, to think about as we go on during the week. And I simply want to ask you this question about these first three Beatitudes. Does this describe you? Are there identifiable places in your experience, and I'm using my words carefully, that comes anywhere in the ballpark of what Jesus is describing here? John 3, Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. That's what these first three Beatitudes are describing, are the internal machinery of what it feels like, what it thinks like, what it looks like to be born again. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to enter the kingdom of heaven. But I know, if you're anything like me, when I read these attributes, suddenly I begin to realize, man, you know what? I'm not poor in spirit. It's pride that's keeping me from owning that. And my emotional life? How many of us are absolutely frozen in our emotions? On the one hand, either our emotions tyrannize us, we are completely at their mercy, and we don't know how to manage them well at all. Or... We turned them off so long ago that we don't know how to use them anymore. And so we failed to know even how to connect with people because we don't, we're not engaged. So I realized I don't know how to mourn. And then thirdly, when I look at meekness, I start to realize, how do I use my power? Am I using it to manipulate? Am I controlling? Am I pushing? Am I trying to take things over? I mean, what is that? Really, what is that temper about? What is my temper about? Because if any of that's true, what the Beatitudes say, and this is what's remarkable about them, that even while you are condemned by failing to measure up to their description, the only thing that's doing is sending you right back to your own poverty of spirit. Do you see how that works? This is the calculus. In other words, we're not without hope because at that moment, we can still go back and say, the only thing I've noticed in my pride, in my emotional frozenness, or in my abuse of power... All that's telling me is that I'm, I'm poor in spirit. And so there's always a chance. There's always a path. It reminds me of when I was in high school. I was in, I was in the theater programs when I was in high school. Loved it. Missed a little bit of a, uh, of a lifestyle choice at that point. I could have, had a, could have had a time in theater. But anyway, but I remember distinctly my theater director, whom I loved, she would oftentimes come in and stop us in the middle of working through a scene in order to sort of coach us through the specifics of it all. And at the very end, she would always say the same thing. She'd turn around, walk back to her seat and say, okay, take it from the top. And I started thinking to myself, okay, so as we begin a journey through the Sermon on the Mount, and I begin to face over and over again, I promise you it's going to happen or you're not listening. What is not in my heart that needs to be as I look at the sermon, what I think the whole sermon is encouraging us to do is say, okay, okay, take it from the top. And where is the top? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It all begins there. It all issues from there. It all comes in me laying all of my deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and standing in him and him alone, gloriously complete. That's the calculus. That's what it means. Whenever I've lost my way spiritually, what I desperately need is that voice inside my head that says, hey, stop. Let's take it from the top. That's an invitation. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, would you, wherever we find ourselves this morning, sitting at home, out and about, or even here in the sanctuary this morning, we do ask that you would give us the grace of leading us into that. It is, it is counterintuitive, Lord. It, it doesn't get into our heads. We have trouble. We want so badly to commend ourselves. We feel so defensive, even as someone brings it up. Sometimes, Father, we can take correction from you, but we can't take it from anybody else. We can't take it from our spouse or from our leaders or from our boss. We're so defensive. Father, would you work against our middle-class spirits and bring us where often for many of us we're terrified to go to great poverty of spirit, but meet us in that place by your spirit. Father, would we find in that place truly what we can only really find is the good life. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. 